Hello everyone and welcome to another episode in the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today's interview, just like our last two, will be conducted via the phone due to the ongoing restrictions from COVID-19 and social distancing. So, today's guest has the most impressive address book I've ever seen. Um, A who's who of everyone that's worth knowing. He's founder of Connected Citizens, founder of Houston Solutions, governor of the Irish Times, director of Shoutout, co-chair of One Young World, chair of Fleming Fulton. He's a barrister and the list goes on and on and on. Um, He has the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, on speed dial. So um, without any further ado, it gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to introduce Mr. Connor Houston. Welcome along to the Shared Ireland podcast, Connor. Thanks, Dad. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Connor, tell me this. How are you coping with lockdown? Well, um, you know, I, I find myself fortunate in that I just myself to look after it. I know a lot of people have, you know, uh, kids or, or um, elderly relatives to look after. So, I've been fortunate that it's really just uh, self that I've begun just checking in obviously with my family and missing seeing them and uh, just sort of trying to the various boards and commitments I have just checking in to see what I can do albeit remotely to assist my various clients and for example the school I'm on the board of governors how our kids are getting on and it's, it's, it's a very challenging time for many people and I suppose it's the time to step up and ask what we can do to, to be there and to help others and in, in my own time, I'm trying to use the time to, to get through the to-do list of things that have been, I've wanted to do or I've been procrastinating about and trying to get them done. So I'm trying to, I suppose, use the time productively as well. Mm-hmm. Now, it's an opportunity to press a bit of a reset, I feel, um, and I'm determined to use the time to do that. Connor, I've just, you mentioned there, um, what, do you sit on a, on a board of governors in a school, did you mention there? I'm uh, the current chair uh, of the Board of Governors at Fleming Fulton Special School, right. uh, which is in Belfast. The only reason why that um, came to my attention there, Connor, is I read recently, um, I think it was actually yesterday, on social media that there is, um, it was the Irish News, sorry, uh, an article by the Irish News that certain families and children and parents um, are finding things extremely difficult because their children are not obviously getting free school meals while they are, while they have no school. And as, as I guess we all know that, you know, people in society, you know, maybe living on the breadline, maybe on the dole, maybe on social welfare of all different types, you know, the, I, I guess this story never even entered my head until I read it of how you know the obvious difficulties we all have this past four or five weeks coping with life but you know there is the other extreme of things where people basic requirements like eating one square meal a day that they used yeah. that they used to get from their schooling system um no longer is available to them yeah I mean I think that I mean what what this crisis has has done is I think it has exposed 
how vulnerable far too many in our society are, how far too close to the breadline many uh, families are at this time. I mean, there's a whole issue around um, the welfare of children, about how we treat our older people. Uh, and I hope that one of the things that comes out of this crisis is that we as a society come together and start to ask some of the big questions of how do we make sure that there is no such thing as child poverty? How do we make sure there is dignity for our old people in a really robust social care system? So actually everything you said is, is, is exposing sort of the really awful side of, of poverty that exists and, and, and and mental health provision and, and all of these things and you know I know through my role at the school from very early on obviously our children are some of the most vulnerable uh, in Northern Ireland very complex care needs a huge um, sense of responsibility given that those, those children are now back home with their parents that's a huge responsibility on them um, you know as I say these children have, have, have complex needs and I suppose as a school we've been trying to ask and I'm so proud of our principal and staff who have been going above and beyond each day to, to be in touch with the pupils, be in touch with the parents to see how we can help, particularly the most vulnerable. Um, but, but it's a very challenging time. And, you know, I, I've heard from, from other schools, uh, examples like you've given there, now of, of children contacting teachers to say they're, they're hungry, they haven't been able to get food. These, these, these are shameful on our society. And... Um, you know, I think after all of this, um, first there's an immediate need to respond to that, obviously, uh, but the, but I think more generally, we're going to have to sit down and, and ask ourselves what kind of society do we want to create post-COVID-19 and one in which children um, are, are not getting um, a good uh, range of meals a day, um, you know, it, it, it's not one that I think we should be trying to protect. So I think there are really fundamental questions about how we care and look after uh, our most vulnerable citizens uh, that, that this, this crisis has brought to the fore. Connor, I agree with everything that you're only after saying. I'm just going to be honest here, Connor. I, like you, like I think the majority of people uh, listening to this podcast over the last four or five weeks, we've all been sitting in our own homes trying to adhere to sensible advice, using our own initiative and trying to keep number one ourselves safe, but more importantly, maybe our family, friends and wider society. And and I guess throughout this time, Connor, you know, I and as I say, everybody probably has been reflecting on life. And and I guess my point here is this just linking it back to what you're only after saying about the vulnerable in society and children and um, elderly and whatnot, is that while we all have good intentions now because we have had this time to reflect on life, and, and I know, and I'm, I guess just can, speaking from my own thoughts here, you know, you know, I want to be kinder to people as, as when lockdown ends. I want to be more compassionate to people. I want to maybe think twice before I speak and maybe hurt somebody with a view, thought or opinion. But my fear is this, and my fear is exactly this, that when life kicks in again and the postman starts putting bills through our letterboxes every morning, and when we all go back to our jobs and when we all get caught up in the rat race of life, which I accept we have to do, but these good feelings that we're all now uh, experiencing and we all want to carry on into the future, 
Unfortunately, how can we ensure that we do carry out these actions, which you're only after saying, that we must do this, we must do this, and we must stop doing A, B, C, or D. How can, you know, what mechanisms, Connor, need to be put in place for us to try and follow through on these, on these aspirations? Well, you know, I think now that, that is the question, and I, and I agree with you that I think that... Um, I've had some fascinating conversations and I've been checking in with people and you know, sort of reflections and how they're thinking about things differently and I think it's made us all appreciate what's really important in life, our health, our family, our friends, our community um, and these, these things are important and, and I agree, funny a word, I have often cited, um, anybody who knows me will know, I've articulated often that we should be trying to build a, a much kinder, fairer, more compassionate world and, and you know that that's the opportunity that we take this sentiment and try to inject it into society for, for the long term how do we do that i agree we're all guilty of it myself included that when when we get busy we we get distracted and uh, we get caught up in the in the the day-to-day affairs of life and um, i suppose that's where I, again one of my interests you now you know is, is, is around citizenship and for me I always ask as a citizen what is my responsibility and I think I suppose all we can really do and what I would challenge is that each of us as citizens needs to ask what is it that I'm going to do about something um, as we emerge from this that, that's a very good point um, that one Connor I agree yeah I, I think that you know it, and, and as with everything and you know my theory and belief is that if, if every person took responsibility to make one small change, uh, we would solve a lot of the, of the planet's problems very quickly. So it's, to me, it's about each of us taking those, having that moment of contemplation, and almost just like, what is the one thing I'll do after this? And we can think about things like, you know, I mean, we've seen extraordinary acts of people giving, of donating, um, both, both their time, their treasure, their talents, you know, people can be uh, going and volunteering with organisations, they could be acting some great initiatives. You know, some some law firms account for like, ringing up charities and saying, "Look, can we give you some free advice?" And so, you know, I think there's, there's a little bit of each of us saying, "What skill, um, what what values do I have that I could share with others?" And being almost in the wider sense, of the word philanthropic, that is giving of ourselves something, other skill, you know, some of our talent, some of our time. Um, volunteering and I think it's if each of us do that that's going to make an impact but I think there's also a bigger responsibility when it comes to thinking about politics and I think this has brought hope to all of us the importance of the, the people that we elect we've seen some great examples of leaders uh, across these islands who have stood up to the challenge and, and try to represent their communities and their people to the best of their abilities but we've also seen uh, some instances unfortunately where people have been found wanting in their ability to to be able to lead, to be able to show vision, to be able to show courage. So I think, I hope that one of the other things we will reflect on as we go forward is the kind of leaders that we uh, have represented, whether it be on, on boards, in, in organisations, or indeed in, in political, in public life. Yeah, no, I, I, I echo that, Connor, and, and I guess just to summarise on this, um, I think the main message coming out of, of what you said there is being responsible 
for our own actions and using our own initiative here and not having to be waited upon and being spoon-fed from um, from any quarter of life. Yeah, I mean, I think there is, uh, uh, if, we, if we were to hold the sort of mirror up to society, there, there has been a tendency in Northern Ireland, maybe there's a little bit of dependency culture, and it's not to, to sort of be critical of us or our society or people. There's a good reason for a lot of that. Um, but there's also, I think, uh, a time for us to, to step up and say, okay, um, we are responsible for our future. How can we, as a society, how can we come together to solve some of the problems? Um, and you know, that, 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 you know, we will look obviously to our executive and assembly for that, but I think we, we also need to take responsibility. That will start on each of our own, in you know, each of our own homes, each of our own streets and communities, asking what we can do to solve some of these problems. Um, and I think that you know, I, I am very much about uh, a citizen-led discussion, a citizen-led um, dialogue, citizen-led solutions uh, informing uh, how we move forward from, from this crisis and for the many other challenges that we as a society face. Yeah, very good. Connor, where are you from? I, am, I was born in Hollywood in County Down okay. and I spent then my childhood uh, in Surrey in England and moved back to Hollywood when I was uh, 13 in 1996 and I've lived more or less um, uh, in either Hollywood, Belfast, uh, most of that time that I've been away in the States and I, I lived in Galway where I did my master's for a year as well. So, uh, but, but yes, so this part of the world has been has always been home. Okay. The reason why I ask that, Connor, is because at the start of most of our podcasts, we ask our guest, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background early years and ultimately what shaped your political thinking and what, you know, how you arrived at this stage in your life? So in your own words, if you don't mind, Connor. Yeah. Um, so I was as I say, born in, in Hollywood County Down. I lived there till I was uh, just over three. Um, and then my parents moved to London. My dad worked in a bank and got posted to London in the sort of mid-1980s and that's where I spent my childhood. I had a very happy childhood. Um, we lived in a lovely village in uh, the southeast of England, very idyllic, um, and we would have come home you know, two or three times a year to visit my grandparents and relations who were based sort of around Belfast and uh, Derry and you know, we were always, I mean, the fact that we always talked about coming home. So even though as a child we didn't, you know, I, I had very little memory of living here, um, there was always a sense that this was the place we were from, this was this was home. Um, moved back here in 1996, so just uh, sort of a year and a half before the Good Friday Agreement. And in fact, the night my dad and my mom told us we were moving home was actually the night that Bill Clinton turned on the Christmas tree lights in uh, City Hall in Belfast. And oh, okay. On the news, and mum and dad sat us down and said, actually, we're going to be moving home there next year. So I've always had a real affinity to that moment um, because what I was seeing as a child was a, a place of, of, hope, of hope. And obviously, we, we had heard as kids that there, there had been that there was trouble, there was violence, that people were dying. I, I wouldn't claim to have had any great insight or knowledge or understanding. And in fact, 
when I moved back in 1996, that was really exposed to give uh, uh, one example of how, uh, I naive I was, I thought Sinn Féin was, a, was an actual place of which Jerry Adams was president. And, you know, the, the, that was sort of how limited my knowledge of uh, Northern Ireland, of Irish politics. So, so just to get that right, I, you, you um, thought that Sinn Féin was a, a place in Ireland? Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. That, that's, Which, that's the first time anyone has ever um, told me that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that is how naive I was as a teenager coming back. And, you know, of course, coming back with a very heavy English accent to a Catholic school in Belfast was a bit of a baptism of fire too. I can imagine. Um, it, it reminds me of the... Um, yeah, I, I, what do you call him? Is he, is he James yeah. from Derry Girls? Well, I, I, I've been joking recently. I've really enjoyed Derry Girls Uh, and 
question why I suppose through the various roles I've had, both as a lawyer, in, in the, the, the business uh, roles I have, but also in the various boards and civic initiatives I'm involved in, it's always about how do we realise the enormous potential and the ambition of this place, and that, that's what motivates me and that's what drives me. Very good. Connor, um, through my role in Shared Ireland, um, I have met many wonderful people. And you and I first met each other, I would guess, slightly over a year ago. And um, you've always struck me as being a very sincere, genuine and compassionate person. But again, for the benefit of our listeners here, Connor, I outlined at the start of the, my introduction that you're founder of Connected Citizens, uh, founder of Houston Solutions, governor of the Irish Times, director of Shoutout, co-chair of One Young World, Chair of the Fleming Fulton, you're a barrister. Um, now, obviously, the, the, your CV extends a lot further than that, but could you maybe, uh, um, you know, just outline what a few of these groups do and um, your role in them, and just, as I say, for the benefit of, of our listeners? Sure. Well, I should, ju- I should just correct one thing. I'm actually a solicitor, so... Um, uh, by, by, actually, so I qualified as a solicitor. I was in private practice for almost a decade in criminal human rights uh, law, which I absolutely loved and was very fortunate to work on a number of, of seminal sort of criminal human rights cases, both here and in, in, uh, in South. Um, and, you know, one of, one of the famous cases I'm very proud of that I was involved with was, was around um, the protection of sources of, of journalists and um, uh, Suzanne Breen, who is um, a brilliant journalist now with Belfast Telegraph, I, I was represented to her, and that case still remains one of the sort of leading authorities on journalistic rights to um, the protection of sources and confidentiality of sources. And so I was very, very lucky now to be involved in some really leading cases. And I suppose one thing being, as, as any lawyer who works, as I put it, the cold face and sort of in. in, in criminal or human rights, you get to, to see the real challenges within society. So uh, a lot of what I was witnessing was was really affecting me in that I was seeing how poverty and inequality and injustice could devastate not just the individual's lives, but, but whole communities' lives. So I became more and more uh, interested, I suppose, um, in how I could be part of solving some of those issues of that kind, what took me then out of uh, practice and into some of the, the various roles I've had. So I spent some time working in the Centre for Democracy and Peace Building, which was a, a think tank, and for them I ran a whole campaign around uh, the uh, European Union referendum. We can now affectionately called Brexit, and uh, that was a very interesting piece of work for two years where we worked on trying to ensure an informed and inclusive conversation on the issues as to how they would impact Northern Ireland. Of course, could never have imagined when I took that project on what, what would, would, would unfold, and I'm sure we'll talk about that mm-hmm. later on. Um, in terms of various organisations involved, I'm one of the um, governors and trustees of the Irish Times Trust, Many people don't know that the Irish Times uh, media group is actually owned by a trust and there are uh, a number of governors appointed to effectively, uh, effectively we are the shareholders of, of the media group. And I wasn't aware of that. Uh, it's a huge, 
huge, well, yeah, it's a huge privilege to be there and um, it's a very unique structure. And in fact, we could probably do a whole podcast on, it, on its own because we're one of the very few media organisations really in the world that has a structure whereby my job as a government trustee is actually to ensure that the paper remains independent and to uphold our values. Mm-hmm. And that those values are obviously around the pursuit of truth, of your diversity of opinion, about an informed, uh, factual-based news, things that we are, that I'm, I'm afraid more generally, we see slipping away within any news uh, paper organisation. So it's a, it's a very important role and it's obviously um, a great privilege to be done, particularly, I suppose, being um, one of two people from Northern Ireland to make sure that the perspectives of this part of the island, particularly in light of, of Brexit. How many governors, how many governors do the Irish Times have, Connor? just ask you a wee question yeah. about about what sure. you're only after saying um as being a gay man as you said have you noticed uh, a difference in people's um the way that you are treated from your time living in england and subsequently when you returned back here to ireland did you notice a difference in people's attitudes towards you as a gay man Irish upbringing as it were I think people 
people struggled to put me neatly into a box. And, um, you know, I, I, I've always, even when it came to things like marriage equality, I remember I wrote a, a blog uh, called Defending Equality, Promoting Compassion, which actually kind of went in Northern Ireland quite viral. And I remember the late Mark McGuinness actually uh, tweeted it out saying it was courageous words. And the, the, the reason I wrote that was that what I was trying to say in the context of the debate was that compassion should be at the heart of it. So whether you're uh, a gay or a member of the LGBT community or whether you're somebody that has has a, a religious conviction that believes that, that marriage equality should happen, you should be compassionate to each other. And mm -hmm. that, that's, I think, a very important thing to say in the context of any uh, debate conversation. That doesn't, though, mean that, that I wasn't right uh, to, to demand equality. So I think what I was trying to say is you can passionately disagree with people, but you can, you can be compassionate in, in the way in which you have that, that conversation. Mm -hmm. It's a very challenging thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do, but I think it's, it's, it's what um, is demanded of us if we want to create a more tolerant and compassionate yeah. society. That, that kind of leads me on to my next question, Connor. What do you think is required to create a truly shared Ireland? I mean, I suppose, Niall, the starting point for me is is right in front of us, which is uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. And I um, would be remain a passionate advocate for the agreement. And I think a lot of people find me properly bemused. Um, I know at various uh, forums I've been in, you're obsessed with the agreement and or, or, or more, more increasingly particularly some of the young leader projects I'm involved in uh, where you have a generation of, of people in say their early 20s who kind of look at you and go yeah I've heard it but don't really know what it is which is, is fascinating itself but for me what I talk when I talk about the agreement I talk about the spirit and values of the agreement and again I, I do look at the agreement as almost being a kind of miracle that happened where the seemingly intractable was 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 overcome and I don't think again we talk enough about the agreement and what it meant and what it symbolizes and and as I say the spirit values of the agreement and one of the things actually I would encourage everybody to do if they're listening is go and google the preamble to the Good Friday Agreement and read it it's, it's, it's a text that I think we should probably in this place read every day um, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful piece of text which sums up to me what it is uh, we should be doing. And in fact, it, I think it sets out what a shared island or a shared island will, will look like. It contains everything, all the ingredients that we need. It talks about exclusively democratic means. Mm -hmm. It talks about mutual respect, mutual trust. It talks about equality. It talks about human rights for all. It talks about reconciliation. It talks about a shared society. and talks about power sharing. It talks about constitutional consent. It talks about, I think, where the agreement's genius is, about the interlinked and interdependent relationships. Mm -hmm. Of course, the agreement structure then, the three strands... And the right to identify as British, Irish, neither. And the right, exactly, the right of identity and, and the right of constitutional consent, mm -hmm. which, is, which is the right guarantee as well. So I, I suppose, for me, everything that, that you need is, is, is within the agreement. And it's why I always point 
your unionist nationalists or, or, or other to say, well, whatever the conversation is you want to have, I'm pretty sure that the guiding lights, that the principles and the values of what it is you want to achieve are sitting there in the agreement waiting to be realised. And it's the great frustration that I have as a citizen of this place is that I don't think we have even begun to imagine the possibility of, of those things. You know, what, what, I, I accept we have had a process of, of moving towards reconciliation, but we have begun to imagine what true reconciliation will look like, what a truly shared society it means for all of us, and the possibility of relationships. That is the relationships between the communities here, the, the, the relationships in North South, and relationships between Britain and Ireland. There's been work done in those. I think you know, there's areas we could point to that have been very successful, particularly in the heyday of call it the British-Irish relationship with the Queen and Ireland. All of those moments, I think, are very important and should be celebrated uh, and should be recognised. But I think in terms of relationships as between citizens, as between how we come together to understand each other, how we come together to solve some of the issues that we face as an island and an island, I don't think we've even begun to imagine what I call the possibility of those relationships. So for me, it's about taking those spirit and values of the agreement and taking them and realising their full potential. Connor, um, I would like to, I guess, focus the majority of this conversation on this next subject for a host of different reasons. And that is going to be our health service. And I'm talking here in particular and all Ireland Health Service. And the reason why I think this is um, this conversation is needed um, today, tomorrow and moving forward is because of the recent events of the coronavirus, COVID-19 and having two different health services in a very small island. Um, if you could just bear with me on this, the group that I um, that is conducting these podcasts is is our own group called Shared Ireland. Now we did put a lot of thought into before we we went public, I guess, into our branding and our name. And Shared Ireland was the name that jumped out to us because I suppose it says everything that we want to say that this island is is all our homes. We all have a vested interest here, regardless of where we live on this island. So it's in that context that an all-Ireland health system. And, and there, there's, there's a wee clip I'm going to play here now for you, Connor, and the benefit of our listeners. And it's from New Zealand. Again, it's an island um, off the coast of Australia, but they're in a unique position like we are because because we are an island we've got the perfect defense mechanism against anything and in particular a virus like COVID-19 and I'm just going to play a wee short clip here um, I just seen it on uh, social media today um, one of the voices is going to be um, a New Zealand health spokesperson minister and then it's going to cut back and forward to Boris Johnson and different UK voices. And it lasts for about two minutes. So I'm going to start that now. Just bear with me.
There were some countries who initially talked about herd immunity as a strategy. In New Zealand, we never, ever considered that as a possibility, ever. And it's important to recognise it's not to stop everybody getting it. You can't do that. It's not possible to stop everybody getting it. And it's also actually not desirable because you want some immunity in the population. Herd immunity would have meant tens of thousands of New Zealanders dying and I simply would not tolerate that and I don't think any New Zealander would. Uh, perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin, take it all in one in one go and allow the disease as it were to, to move through the, the population. We currently have 102 cases. But so did Italy once. We're not doing the things that, you know, sometimes uh, perhaps are, are happening elsewhere just because it seems like a popularist thing to do. But the trajectory is very clear. Act now or risk the virus taking hold as it has elsewhere. Things like closing schools and stopping big gatherings don't work as well, perhaps, as, as people think. We have, for instance, 9 million protective um, masks already here in New Zealand, should we need them. Reports that some NHS trusts are running out of protective equipment has caused huge concern. Due to shortages, we would now have to share masks. We're still, and will continue, to track and trace every single one of those cases. We know uh, where they came from, what links to overseas travel, who those individuals were in contact with. So if someone in that contact group then has COVID, we can continue to trace uh, the line of how people came in contact with it. People were transferred from hospitals into care homes to release pressure on hospitals, but without being tested first. So they were, in effect, carrying the COVID-19 into places where there were lots and lots of vulnerable people. Every person entering New Zealand will be required to self-isolate for 14 days. These are the toughest restrictions in the world. Still today, you can continue to fly into the UK with no checks, no measures, no screening, no tests and no quarantine. Apply a simple principle. Act like you have COVID-19. I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus patients and I shook hands with everybody. Because we believe that decisive action, going hard and going early, gave us the very best chance of stamping out the virus. And it has. We have done what very few countries have been able to do. We have stopped a wave of devastation. Because I know there will be many people looking now at our apparent success. Britain is on track to record one of the worst coronavirus death tolls in Europe. That's, um, that's a couple of minutes there, Connor. I'm not too sure if you heard that today or yesterday yourself, did you? I, I thought the reason why I wanted to play it there, just again for the benefit of, of anybody that maybe hasn't heard it, you know, the similarities between ourselves and New Zealand are remarkable. Like, but and it leads me back to the two-tier health policy and how we have tried to deal with this coronavirus in this island. And and I want to stress this from a shared Ireland point of view. This has nothing got to do with us trying to score political points here or use this virus to further promote an all-Ireland agenda. I want to make that perfectly clear now. This is purely about saving people's lives and leaving political aspirations to the one side for now because that's not important now. But this highlighted to me, Connor, 
and many others that I've been speaking to, is that a two-tiered approach to this virus, and who knows, this could rear its ugly head again in, in the winter months of this year, next year, it could come back, nobody knows. But now is the time that we need to plan. We need to have a bit of joined up thinking. And I'm also being critical of the Southern government here, just, I'm not um, trying to dig out the British government by no way. You know, uh, recently, um, Leo Varadkar allegedly did not um, make contact with the Northern Ireland executive to make them aware of his five-point phased reopening plan. So, you know, there, there's criticism all around, but now isn't the time probably to criticise. Now's the time to act. Now's the time to plan. And now's the time to prepare uh, for future. Could I have your assessment, Connor? on, you know, why, number one, do you agree that an All-Ireland approach to health is important? And number two, if you do, um, how can we achieve this? Okay, um, well, thank you, and, and I appreciate there was a lot of, obviously, um, there's a lot of points, I think, that have been made, both in terms of the, the tips that you paid and then the, the, the questions you posed there. I suppose... The first thing to say is that I think what those clips illustrate, and I think what um, the, the point that you're trying to illustrate is the importance of leadership. And what we are seeing right across the world, and we should pick New Zealand and, and, and UK there to, to, to do that comparative, you probably could have done it uh, with multiple different countries, but the same conclusion would be reached, which is we are, it, it's, a crisis will will uh, demonstrate who the real leaders are from, as it were, uh, maybe the, the, the populists. And we, we have seen in countries where there has been decisive leadership, where there has been courage in taking big, bold decisions very quickly that may backfire uh, in, in terms of what the pop, uh, in terms of what citizens may think of it, but doing it in, in, in the public interest being not afraid to collaborate, not afraid to depend on expertise, on guidance, on advice, and, uh, and on evidence, and, and to be uh, able to very ably communicate that. I think, um, to, to, to pay credit, I think the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand has, is, is one of the most effective communicators I've seen in politics. I mean, she, she's um, a very impressive politician. And um, so all of those things feed into, I think, the issue of leadership and how our leaders respond and what they do in that. So the, I suppose the first thing to say is I think that good leaders will always act in what is in the best interest, what is strategically the best thing to do, what the evidence is telling them to do, looking to see who they can partner and collaborate with, how they can break down what the normal practice might be in order to do, what needs to be done in the crisis. That's what leadership demands and that's what leadership requires. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's a roundabout way of coming to your, your question, which is, for me, the question is about what did, what did the leader, what, what was required of leadership in terms of meeting this crisis? And I would have thought, I'm not a healthcare expert, but I would have thought the conversations around the fact we are an island, and that is not to make any political point about it, it's just a matter of, of fact, it's a matter of geography, we right. are an island. 
and with something like this, the issue of spread, containment, how you're going to have, is going to have to be dealt with on the basis that you're an island. To me, from very early day, joined up strategy, joined up thinking should have been at the forefront. And I, I would further say it will be absolutely essential as we uh, emerge from this crisis mm-hmm. in terms of making sure that one part of the island that doesn't do something to the detriment of the other or vice versa. Absolutely. So I think that, 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 that to me that uh, leadership in terms of, of how that's done and, and what I would say is that there is absolutely nothing either in terms of the agreement, in terms of the, the executive, the north-south body, in terms of the various both personal and uh, more structural arrangements that exist on this island to stop those kinds of things happening in the face of this crisis. There is nothing to stop urgent meetings of uh, the, 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 the Taoiseach uh, with uh, ministers here in Northern Ireland and vice versa. And, and of course there has been, and I've seen examples where that has been done, where there has been uh, coordination north-south and, and engagement. Could there be more of it? Absolutely. And should there be more of it? Absolutely. So I suppose all I would say is I think that a lot of the structures and mechanisms in order to respond to this are probably there, but I think that there should be a, a greater strategy as how that coordination, how those conversations, how that communication, how that engagement between the, the two jurisdictions the island will continue uh, in the months and and years because this, this is going to be a long process in which a, a, ahead. And um, I suppose the, the question of a of an all island health service, which I think is what you, is, is that, well, that you know, I suppose I will sound like a politician. If that is that is a political decision, that is a, a difference. I am saying that in order to meet this crisis, good leadership using imaginatively the existing structures and relationships that are there uh, could 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 uh, could do this job, could 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 meet this crisis head on. Whether or not uh, the creation of an all island health service, well, that, that's a much bigger issue because you're not going to create an all island health service um, without huge political will, without a huge conversation about how that would be funded, how that would work, and all of those things. And of course, um, there are fundamental differences in, I suppose, almost ideologically, in how the health service in Northern Ireland uh, is funded and operated as against the health service in, in the South, where it is not necessarily free at the, access, uh, at the point of access for all citizens. So that it, it is too, I suppose, very different approaches and systems. Um, and there will be experts much more uh, capable than me to articulate the benefits and otherwise of trying Connor. to uh, merge them or encourage greater collaboration. Connor, for, for me, this is going to be um, overly simplistic what I'm going to say here, and I accept that fully. But, you know, health is one of these subjects that we all, I'm assuming, can unite around. Because whether you're Arlene Foster, Jeffrey Donaldson, Michelle O'Neill, Colin Eastwood, Naomi Long, Leah Varadkar, Simon Coveney, you or me, you know, health impacts us all. Our families, our youth, our elderly in society. And for me, it, it is one subject 
that 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 we all have a vested interest in getting right. And if that means that a small population of over six million can um, you know put our heads together and leave political thinking and religious differences and everything to the one side and and unite around a common cause to look after our society for the betterment of our people. And I did say that this is going to be an overly simplistic way of looking at things. But you know, we did speak about earlier in this podcast about everyone, you know, being responsible ourselves. And and you know, this is the time that I believe that after this, what the world has suffered here, that, that, you know, we have to be practical in our own country. And as I say, now is the time that I believe that this conversation really needs to grow a set of legs. It needs to be fleshed out. And I say not for political purposes, but purely uh, to look after every citizen on this island. Yes. And, and, and I mean, in that sentiment now, you know, I would concur. I think if you're talking about practical, real strategy, coordination, collaboration, putting, yeah, as it were, citizens across this island, wherever they come from, and whatever they're about, at the forefront of their, their health and well-being, you know, that, that all sounds, you know, absolutely the right approach. I think the challenge, as with everything, is, um, and as I say, my view is that should be being done. Let me break it. There should be coordination across this island, profound collaboration between and all around the Republic of Ireland in terms of meeting this crisis at every level, and particularly with regards to the healthcare response, because that is the best way of mitigating the worst effects of this virus and also helping us to emerge from it. But I think that there is what you're what you're getting towards is is a, is a more profound question, which is how what kind of society wants to be, how do we want to try and make decisions for society, how do we want to evolve? I think that that. For me, that, that is conflating potentially. So you, I, I appreciate the sincerity that you're saying. I am not making trying to advance my own political cause or, or agenda on this. But I think that for many, um, it would be seen that, that that's exactly what will be happening. Because if you're doing health on an online basis, well, why not education? And why not then the economy? And, then, and, and that is unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, that is the construct upon which our political fault lines have been built. So for me, a lot of these conversations, should be, it goes back to what I talked about earlier, it's, it's using the uh, spirit and values of the agreement uh, around you know, uh, equality, around mutual respect, around sharing uh, a shared society, and looking at the interlinked and interdependent sets of relationships. And so, for example, what I would say is, what I'd actually be interested in is, okay, let's almost take those three sets of relationships and look and see what we could be doing about it. What could we, I mean, there will be an element given uh, that there is a Northern Ireland uh, health service. What, what could we do better with that health service as it's, there's then a question of we are part of the UK healthcare system. What is are, are we maximising our position within that UK-wide healthcare system? And absolutely, then inextricably linked. And we are on an island. What could we be doing uh, in terms of healthcare provision on this island? And of course, there are many examples already now where there has been really good, where practical 
has trumped ideology. So, for example, I know up in the Northwest, there's brilliant um, interaction between Al McElvin and Letter Kenny. You have the uh, provision of uh, children's heart surgery being done for the whole island of Dublin. So, pragmatism can absolutely win in this. And I absolutely want to have more sensible conversations about how we do things better. But I do think um, that, it goes back to, I think, all conversations that are, if you like, about the kind of society we want to be, about the thinking about the kind of state and systems we want to have, they have to go back through that, if you like, um, Good Friday Agreement arithmetic, which is putting reconciliation, shared society, mutual respect, the heart of the conversation, and then using the interlinked and interdependent sets of relationships to resolve them. Okay, Connor. Um... <clears throat> We, we spoke a lot about, um, or a little bit about the Good Friday Agreement and the principles of it. And I, like you, Connor, believe that everything that we do moving forward, the Good Friday Agreement and the mechanisms uh, should be at the core of everything. It also states quite clearly in the Good Friday Agreement that, and it legislates for a border poll uh, when there's an appetite for it. When should the British Secretary of State call this border poll, do you believe? I, I absolutely accept that, that, and I said it uh, when I outlined that one of the core spirit and values of the agreement is, is obviously the issue and the right of constitutional consent, and that the, if you like, the practical mechanism then that the agreement outlines for that is the triggering of a border poll. I think, as with the agreement, there were there were many there are many things that were were left out or, or, or could have been done better with hindsight, and, and this is one of the provisions that I feel was probably left deliberately vague because um, of, of the contentious nature of it on both sides. But in a sense, we, we are slightly now in an invidious position where nobody can tell you what the precise criteria or mechanism should be Correct. for the Secretary of State to do it. So I actually believe, because it's an international, the, the lawyer of me is saying, right, well, my view is that um, it is an international treaty. The co-guarantors of that treaty are the British and Irish governments. And I think that at some point they're going to have to accept that the responsibility is going to fall on them to outline a set of criteria that should be met in consultation, obviously, with the uh, parties in Northern Ireland as to the criteria for uh, the, the triggering of, of that border poll. Because as it stands in the agreement, the decision must be made by the uh, UK or the British Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. and, and so to me, it, well, who's going to impose that criteria? Strictly speaking, the British government should have done it. Um, but I think there's an argument to be made that given the international treaty status of the agreement, that it's probably a British-Irish issue to be resolved where they agree what that criteria should be. And I, and I have to say, I do, whilst I have a, a view as to whether or not it is helpful uh, right now to be um, uh, advocating for a, a border poll in the immediate future, I accept there's right to do so, obviously, but, but I actually do believe that it, it, it would be appropriate, and I think it's only right and fair, that there should be, as it were, the rules of the game should be spelled out so that people know what the criteria or what the, the if you like, the stepping stones are mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to achieve uh, the activation of, of that border poll. Um, I suppose, you know, whilst we're on that issue, I, I 
a right to to be exercised, and it is, if you like, the way in which the, the, why why would you trigger a border poll? The trigger of the border poll is to change the sovereignty of Northern Ireland from being that of the United Kingdom to that of of, of Ireland. That's that's effectively, in a legal sense, what the the border poll, as I understand it, would would would, would achieve. But to me. That we need to have before we get anywhere near the activation of that kind of decision is a much more profound and bigger one. Which is, at its most basic sense, we need to talk about the future um, and we need to talk about the kind of society we want to be. And we're going to have to um, uh, look when it comes to people's identity and and whether they desire in United Ireland or they desire to remain in the United Kingdom, that that, um, is is a very emotive. It's kind of in the bones of people, um, but there's also going to have to be a discussion uh, around practicalities about how we confront uh, issues around, as you pointed out in this conversation, around healthcare, around education, around an economy, around how we tackle some of the major issues. Right there, how we confront uh, again to look at as an island and as islands the global challenge of of climate change. And uh, you know, one of the things that I keep pointing to. All of these conversations are happening against the, the background of the fourth industrial revolution happening under our feet. The digital revolution is happening, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that that I don't think we're thinking enough about the sort of global perspective, both in terms of climate change and in terms of a, a fourth industrial revolution happening. In terms of how we actually have the conversation about our future, because the world we are moving into is going to be a very different one. And it's going to demand very different thinking in terms of how, as a society, um, we, we meet those challenges and how we as citizens, I suppose, as go back to something I said at the very beginning, how we exercise our, with our rights and our responsibilities as, as citizens. So uh, to, to quote uh, Yates, you know, all, all this change, all this change utterly, and we're going to have to change how we have conversations about the constitutional question, we're going to have to change it utterly. And for me, it's going straight up out of the agreement, but it's also then having the courage to ask what kind of society we want to be, creating a trusted space for those conversations, having a citizen-led conversation, making sure that conversation is inclusive and informed. And critically, I, I submit that as part of, of having a truly inclusive conversation, all of the options for our future must be on the table. That is that there is no inevitability uh, for any one option uh, set out. And I think part of the challenge has been to date around this conversation debate is that for many unionists in particular, they see that the outcome has been predetermined and they've been asked to get involved in debates in which there isn't actually a debate because the conclusion has already been reached. And I suppose I am trying to uh, argue that what I think we should do, I'm not saying people should be advocating for United Ireland if they believe that there should be campaigns, people should be producing reports and producing evidence and building their campaign, articulating what this will look like. But I think that as a society, we have to sort of say, well, how, how do we make sure that there is a, a real debate, a real conversation in which all of the options, which of course the competing constitution are both legitimate options, uh, remain on the table. And I think that the kind of thinking, and it's difficult thinking, that we need to do, but, but we, we have the agreement to guide us in, in how we might go around having that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Very good. 
Connor, we're just approaching an hour into this podcast here. So um, one last, I guess, major topic, uh, if you don't mind, that we'll try and um, delve into here is what is your take, Connor, on another Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil government propped up by now the Green Party? And the second part of this question, and should the party that won the popular vote in the last Southern general election, namely being Sinn Féin, should they have been a part of these talks and I suppose ultimately a part of this new government? Uh, I feel like giving a politician answer that, but that's really up to all the parties concerned how they, they've acted and who they want to get into government with and all the rest. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that the, the election, whatever your politics, the election should be in the, in the last election itself was, was a stunning result, you know, uh, to have effectively, as you put it, won the popular vote. You know, the, the arguments on the other side, I'm sure, will be well made. Yes, the majority of people did vote for Sinn Féin, they voted for other parties. So, um, you know, this is, a, this is a whole issue of um, having coalition governments and how the, and I think the constitution is relatively silent on, on this, how you then go about forming uh, a, a coalition government, what the rules of the game are, should the party with the popular vote, for example, uh, in a constitution be given the right to the first preference on whether they can form the government, etc. These are these are issues of, of, of that perhaps need to be looked at in light of this. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, that's politics, and the parties who are talking to each other uh, obviously see the opportunity to be in government and to be in government together. And um, I, my, my. One thinking on it is, is that if for Sinn Féin, this will be, if, if a Finnafolkian Gale Green government is formed, they will be effectively then the opposition, and that is an opportunity for them to, as it were, cut their teeth and uh, put, put themselves then as a, as a clear alternative government uh, when the next door election comes around. That, I see, is their opportunity. Of course, the opportunity for Finnafolkian Gale Greens is to um, take the country through this difficult crisis um, and if they can show that they can solve some of the big issues, particularly uh, around housing, which I think was a, 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 not the only reason, I think it would be too pleasant to say the same reason Sinn Féin did well the last election, but housing had a major part. And a, a sense, I think, that you've from, from talking to friends in Cork and Limerick and Dublin, a sense that, they, that, that they've been left behind, that it was okay for the people at the top, but that, that sort of in, in a vertical mid-island was feeling a squeeze. Certainly. If Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael Green can address that, that, that sense of injustice, um, then I think that they will they will also be rewarded for it and potentially, they, if you like, the, the, the swing towards it may, may, may have been a, a blip. But, but that's where the that's politics with the opportunity uh, for both sides of that equation. So, um, time, it's, 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 I think, actually standing right back, there's nothing quite fitting that uh, as, as the Republic of Ireland is about to head into the centenary of its independence, um, uh, and, and obviously the centenary is around the, the Civil War, uh, there's something I think that is quite uh, fitting that the, the two protagonists of the physical wings of, 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 of the tribes from the Civil War come together. Uh, a centenary on, and uh, I think, or a century on, and I think that um, there's, there's a symbolism in that um, that should uh, go on unmentioned.
Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, Connor, um, I genuinely could talk to you for hours, and no doubt we will do so in a private capacity as we um, move out of um, the COVID-19 restrictions and we will no doubt get a chance to catch up and get a pint in the future. Um, So we always tail off the podcast on a slightly more lighthearted note. So um, here we go. I normally ask um, Connor, all our guests, who is the most famous person they have in their phone book. But because you literally know everybody, um, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, Connor, who are the most famous three people that you would have in your phone book? Um, well, I, I, I want to be very mindful of, of, of not only breaching people's trust. Um, yes. But I suppose, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, sorry, maybe uh, my name, uh, one or two, but maybe just give a clue. The other, you know, I would have a female, senior female political leader, uh, And, and of course, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but uh, you have got the president of Ireland. Um, I believe you and him are on um, fairly good terms. I had the privilege of studying at the president of the professor of the Irish Centre for Human Rights when I was a student. Um, I have the privilege of, of knowing him and, and his family. And, uh, they've been wonderful friends to me and, and, and it's, it's wonderful to see You've maybe in your last answer there, Connor, uh, give us this answer already. But which actor would you choose to play yourself in your life's movie and why? Um, I, I would have said Jamie Dornan because he looks like me, but I thought that would be a complete lie. Who, who, who was that, Connor? Uh, Jamie Dornan. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Tell me this, Connor. Who inspires you in life? Um, I'm very lucky that I, I suppose that I have a lot of people in my life um, and a lot of people around me and a lot of people talked about this podcast and inspire me. But I, I suppose, you know, for me, the people who inspire all I do and, and all that I am are, are you know, my parents, um, you know, my, my, my dad and my mum, the values they instilled in me. My dad had a very successful career in business. Um, he created a lot of jobs and opportunities for people here, you know, uh, in challenging times. And, and um, you know, has, has always encouraged me to do my best. My mum is one of the most selfless people you could meet. She spent her life doing things for other people, working for charity, particularly most vulnerable 
in their own ways, they have, I suppose, inspired me to to be the person I am and to, you know, to be ambitious, to work hard, to achieve great things, but always, I suppose, to make sure that you're doing that in the service of others and giving back and, and yeah, so I'm, it's my parents. Very good. Great answer, by the way. Connor, the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Again, it's kind of what I say. I, you should probably have keep these things much more accessible for when you get off. Uh, but on the spot, the one that, that, that pained into my head um, was one that my, uh, my uncle, uh, Terry, said to me once. And he said, take the opportunity of a lifetime during the lifetime of the opportunity. Very good. And, uh, I've always kind of thought it was quite useful because all too often an opportunity comes along, you go, oh, I'll think about it, or I'll be, and, and the, you know, the, the lifetime of the opportunity expires. So I think it's, it's, quite a good, uh, it's quite a good piece of advice. It is, it is. I'm going to hold on to that one myself. Connor, if you could be anyone for one day, who would that person be and why? Favourite food, Connor? Sorry, my favourite what? Sorry? Your favourite food. What would your last uh, meal be? <laughs> my favourite food is actually Mexican, anything Mexican. I actually, when I was a student, worked in a Mexican restaurant and uh, I think I ate for wages. Um, I love Mexican food. Anything, enchiladas, fajitas, anything Mexican. Yeah, I would be quite partial to that myself. Okay, Connor, last question, and we always ask this question to all our guests. And it is, if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, alive or dead, who would them three people be and why? Um, I find it very hard to limit it to three. Um, well, well, obviously you're going to invite no, me, no, so, so I'm the first, I, I, I understand no, but, that. But you're, 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 you're the additional uh, <laughs> table now. Um, I think, um, I suppose it would be... Um, I, I have Van Morrison uh, because yeah. I respect his uh, his art, his music. I enjoy his company immensely, and um, he's an incredibly kind and thoughtful. For I think his poetry actually. Uh, he was recently called doing this. He described his Belfast bard, and I think that's, that's something he's a real passion for, for Belfast and for home as well. So. He, he would be there. So, so just again for, for the sound quality here, I just want to clarify it. So the first one would be Van the Man, Van Morrison. Van the Man. Uh, the second one would be Michelle Obama. Oh, okay, Michelle Obama. Uh, I just think she's a phenomenal uh, woman. I think she, uh, I, I love every minute of her book and I just think she's a great role model for, for, for all of us. Um, when, when they go low, we go high. I love it. I 
that. And then, um, uh, who else would I would I have with 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 Fran and Michelle? Um, yeah, maybe. Um, well, you know, I I, I suppose I'd be a, a great a great affinity to to the the, the most recent incumbents uh, of Boris Victoron. So, the May Robinson, May Medley, or my Lily Higgins. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure I could choose between the three of them. So, uh, I, I current and former president. Would, would be there too as well. Yeah, very, very, very good choices, Connor. And as you rightfully say, we we all uh, could could probably name a list of people that we would love to invite to our dinner party. But no, I, I really enjoyed your your three guests there. Yeah, that would be a quite interesting dinner party, no doubt. I think so. Yeah, Connor Houston. It's on that note that um, on behalf of our listeners and the Shared Ireland team, I would like to say thank you very much for giving up your time. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Connor, and we could have discussed a lot more. I appreciate that, but um, we'll hopefully speak again in the future. Um, I'm not entirely sure when this podcast is going to go out. Um, so today's date is Thursday, the 7th of May. Um, so um, I would just like to say, Um, On behalf of the Shared Ireland team, once again, a big thank you to all our frontline workers for protecting us all, regardless of what sector they're in and on what part of the island. Um, We will probably never really be able to truly uh, show our appreciation of all the work that everyone has done uh, in order to protect us and our families. And um, I'll just give you a last word, Connor, if you want to take an opportunity. Well, I concur with that. I mean, we talk about uh, superheroes, and I think one thing unites us across uh, this island is, is our um, absolute uh, respect and admiration for our healthcare and key workers. Um, and, and I hope, as I say, after all this, we're going to continue to value and appreciate all they do. But just to say thank you you now for inviting me on it's been a privilege i've really enjoyed it though we do talking with you and debating the issues of the day and i think it's so important and i i think it's 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 vital that we all keep talking to each other having thoughtful conversations challenging respect for each other um, but, but just keep talking um, so thank you so much for having me and to quote a friend of ours and i hope he won't mind if i name check him here reverend gary mason I think we'll end on this, learning how to disagree respectfully. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Connor, take care. Thank you. Be good. Thank and you. thanks. Thank you now. Thank, Fa- you. thank you for listening, everyone. Stay tuned and speak soon. Bye-bye.